time of fellowship here uh, on Sunday evening as a church for uh, inspiration and for Pi. And we're going to talk about our new small groups that are starting up. And I hope you'll make use of those opportunities uh, to just go deeper with the Lord. Maybe you're not connected or you feel disconnected as a church family. And these are great opportunities for you to meet throughout the week or on Sunday evening and just get to know one another and how to pray for each other and and be the church and reach out into this community. And so I I hope that you will make the time next Sunday evening to be here for for part of that. If you want to make a pie, uh, I think there's a sign-up list on the the table out in the foyer. Uh, Just make sure you do that this morning. And if you don't get the prayer request on the uh, prayer call, make sure you add your name to that list as well. Because if anything, uh, we are a body of believers that believe in the power of prayer. Well, I've got to tell you, it's been good. Uh, to focus in uh, this series with you for the past four Sundays. And we're going to wrap it up today, the series where we have been slipping our feet into the different kinds of shoes of people who actually encountered Jesus face to face. And before we get into our shoe for the day, let me ask you, how did you sleep last night? Uh, Did you sleep well? Did did any of you have one of those nights where you just could not close your eyes? You just could not go to bed? Sometimes it's heartburn. You know, you had Mexican too many times this past week. Uh, Sometimes it's a bladder issue. Sometimes it might be the video game you were playing or the movie you watched, uh, and you're still replaying it on the back of your eyelids. You know, you ever have that happen to you? Does your mind just get swirling sometimes with all that's going on in your life and all the things you have to do, all the things you have to accomplish, and you just can't calm down the thoughts? Well, there was a man named Nicodemus who seemed to be having just one of those nights. He was tossing, turning. He was counting sheep, maybe doing the warm glasses of milk thing, taking Tylenol PM. I don't know what he was doing, but nothing seemed to calm the thoughts and let him rest. And I don't know if he went to Jesus at night because he, he thought that it was the only time a busy like, guy like Jesus could meet with him, which is very, very doubtful. And I don't know if maybe he went to see Jesus at night because uh, he, he was afraid to be seen with him in the daylight, which is very probable. But what I do know is, is that this is a guy who had a lot on his mind. He had a lot of questions that would not let him rest. Another thing I know about this dude Nicodemus is, is that no one ever referred to him as dude. (laughs) He was not a flip-flop wearing fresh from the wilderness kind of guy like John the Baptist that we looked at. He probably didn't even own a pair of flip-flops. I don't think he owned a pair of work boots or Chuck Taylors or or Vans. He was a button-down, polished, shiny, classic wingtip wear. This man was a scholar, a professor, an intellectual. He was one of those academics that I can smoke every one of you in a game of Jeopardy kind of people. You know someone like that? Someone that you always want to be on your team when you're playing Trivial Pursuit? Well, that's what Nicodemus was like. And he also possessed a pretty impressive pedigree. His grandfather was an ambassador to the Roman emperor Pompey. His dad was a celebrated and decorated war general, and even his name, Nicodemus, 
it meant victory for the people. So greatness, I think, was expected for this man from the moment he was born. How many of you this morning have a nickname? Maybe at work, maybe in your family, you've got a nickname that you go by. Some of us have nicknames I think we would rather forget. (laughs) Some of us have nicknames that that stick with us through life. My mom's brother and a bunch of other people, they used to call me Wild Bill, and I like that. I had an uncle that used to call me Sweet William, and I didn't like that one so well. Uh, my sister will still call me Billy Ralph on occasions. And even when I was a little kid, I had an aunt and an uncle. Now, when I was a kid, I was pretty thin, but they used to call me Fat Boy. Now, I never liked those two, <laughs> and the jury's still out sometimes on my sister. But nonetheless, uh, most of the time, people just call me Bill. Or my coaches used to call me by my, my last name. And somehow Bill is just stuck, even though my real name is William. Most of you that know our daughter Olivia, people call her Liv or Livy. Or maybe you're a Samantha and people call you Sam. Or, or Abby for Abigail. Becky for Rebecca. Bobby for Robert. Izzy for Isabel. Uh, Judy for Judith. But no one, to my knowledge, ever referred to Nicodemus as Nick. He wasn't a Nick for short kind of guy. And I would summarize it as saying it was his heritage. It was his background, his success, his wealth, um, his learning, his intellectual prowess that made him so easily acceptable in this group of the spiritually creme de la creme. Nicodemus was an elite member of the country club Pharisees. Now, have you ever heard of the Pharisees in Scripture? You remember these guys? There were over 6,000 of them in Jesus' day, and they were supposed to be the strict observers of the law of Moses from the Old Testament and their own laws that were man-made, which most of the time, as you can guess, superseded God's laws. They had added to God's original top ten list, the Ten Commandments, over 600 of their own laws. And they became masters at twisting God's word to justify their own power-hungry lifestyles. While at the same time, they poured guilt on the common people for being religious and spiritual underachievers. In fact, Jesus said of them in Matthew 23, 13, Woe to you, teachers of the law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. They were intimidating, they were judgmental, and tragically as a result, the people began to look at God the same way. But enter Jesus. You know, I've said it a couple of times during this series, but Jesus didn't only come to lay down his life for our sins so that we could go to heaven. Understand, that is a huge deal. But he also came to this world to show us what the Heavenly Father was like. And as Jesus moved among the people, all kinds of people, it didn't matter what kind of shoes they were in. He just met them where they were. And he reached out to those who were seen as the untouchable. 
Those who seemed to be forgotten, broken, those that were full of shame, those that the Pharisees had labeled as, quote, notorious sinners, unquote. And as Jesus moved among them, he blew away their misconceptions about God and what he's really like. You see, no matter what kind of label people are trying to stick on you today, no matter what kind of label you're trying to attach to yourself, Jesus puts one label on everyone, priceless. Not only was Nicodemus a member of the Pharisees, he was part of a group known as the Sanhedrin. They were seen as the inner circle of all Jerusalem, in fact, of all Israel. They based it on God's command to Moses back in the Old Testament in Numbers eleven sixteen, where they picked 70 of the, the Jewish intellectuals to rule over spiritually the entire nation. And these 70 men plus the high priest were the most powerful and influential people of the day. So when Jesus gets a visitor late at night, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he comes as a leader among men. He's an intellectual, he's an Old Testament scholar, but most of all, he comes simply as a man whose thoughts, whose questions will not let him go to sleep. And his story very simply begins this way in John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Now, I love the way his story begins because there's a couple of things that just jumped out at me as I read those first two verses. First of all, I think it's incredible that Nicodemus refers to Jesus as rabbi. Because you see, in the eyes of the Pharisees, Jesus didn't have the necessary credentials to, to be officially honored with such a distinguishing title. He had no official seminary training. He was not the disciple of some other great rabbi. He had no masters of divinity, no doctor of theology degree. He was not a PhD. He was just a simple carpenter from Nazareth in Galilee. And as we saw last week, he was one who just happened to teach with an authority unlike anybody had ever seen. And Nicodemus addresses him with a title of respect. And did you notice how he said, we all know? We all know that God has sent you. Not only does Nicodemus admit that the miracles that Jesus is doing all over the place prove he's from God. But he's got other colleagues that are starting to have questions, others that are curious, others that are intrigued and wondering, what if this Jesus really is from God? Maybe John the Baptist was accurate when he looked at him and said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so Nicodemus is using the plural here, and he's saying some of us guys are wondering. But Nicodemus is the only one who has the boldness and the courage to step it up and meet Jesus one-on-one. -on -one. And I believe all of heaven is leaning forward to hear this conversation. You know why? Because God has already said back in the Old Testament, 
in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And you know, I, I think Jesus respected Nicodemus' seeking heart and his courageous heart because God is always honored. God is even embraced when skeptics and doubters and seekers honestly want to have a dialogue with him. And friends, you need to know if that's where you are right now because of things that have happened to you or people you love within your life, you need to understand God wants to hear your questions. God is delighted when you dig and you research and you probe and experience God because of honesty. He loves that. He loves sincere skeptics. He loves sincere doubters. And he sincerely loves you. If you seek me with all your heart, you're going to find me. And I've learned it really is a head and a heart kind of thing. It's been my experience through the years that people who construct some intellectual argument against why they should believe in God, they're really just building a wall of intellectualism around a heart that's been wounded somewhere along the way. And if they'll just get honest with God in in their emotional center and, and the core of their being, and they'll open up to experiencing Him, and they'll look at the evidence and weigh it honestly, the compelling evidence. I've noticed how a few seeds of faith can be planted, and, and the light just starts to get turned on. And God suddenly becomes very, very real to that kind of person. Now, I say that because I believe God is ready to have a, an intellectual, honest, open dialogue with some of you today. And I just want to tell you from personal experience, he really does want to satisfy your head and your heart. Now don't you wonder what the scene with Jesus and Nicodemus actually looked like? Are they sitting together at, at, on an outdoor patio together? Are they around a small uh, fire? Or maybe they're at one of those small cafe kind of tables with a candle or a lamp burning between them and you can see the light dancing off their face. Or maybe they're up on a roof and there are no other lights except the light of the stars above them over the city as they talk. But whatever the setting is, one thing's for certain. It's late, it's dark, and Nicodemus has come for some seer, honest dialogue. He just wasn't aware of how deep Jesus was going to get. Before Nicodemus even has a chance to ask the question, Jesus starts. Because he already knows what Nicodemus is thinking. He already knows his doubts. He already knows all of his intellectual arguments and his hang-ups. He already knows that Nicodemus really wants to ask, are you the promised one? Are you the Messiah? Are you from God? And if you're not, then who are you? And where did you really come from? He knows that's what Nicodemus wants to ask. But that's not necessarily what Nicodemus needs to hear. And so Jesus rocks his world by breaking the silence. And he says this in verse 3. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you're born again, you cannot see. The kingdom of God. You see, Nicodemus needs to learn. The issue is not so much, you know, Nicodemus, who I am, Jesus says, or where I came from. The issue, Nicodemus, is not where you came from. It's where you're going. 
The issue's not where you're from, it's where you're going. How's that for an icebreaker? Jesus wanted to take this conversation to a deeper level right off the bat. Now, he could have done what you and I do. He could have started off with the small talk, which for you and me these days would be, whew, man, this humidity, this heat, that's really something, isn't it? Or how about that Ohio State-Oregon game yesterday, 77 to 31? What did you think about that? You know, for some of you, that's the only part of my sermon you're going to hear this morning. Um, You're from Nazareth? I've got an aunt that lives in Nazareth, you know? None of that stuff. Rather than waste time, Jesus immediately dives below the surface and he says one of those, wait a minute, time out, what did he say? Kind of statements. He says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. To which wise, learned Nicodemus says, huh? (laughs) What are you talking about? He says this in verse 4. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? How does that work? And I think Nicodemus is probably smiling at Jesus in this point. And he's saying, come on. You're talking to a 70-year-old professor of Old Testament literature here. Be serious. I came out tonight because I've got some serious intellectual questions that I would love to ask, such as, and Jesus cuts him off again and says this in verse 7, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Jesus replied, you're a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I love the response of Jesus, and I think he's smiling back at Nicodemus as he speaks these words. You see, the phrase that Jesus uses here when he says to be born again, it literally translates as born from above. So you see what God is offering to this weary Nicodemus is exactly that. A birth from above. Like a heavenly birth or a spiritual rebirth. And this whole concept of God giving to women and to men a new heart, a new eternal life, it's clearly revealed throughout the Old Testament scripture of which Nicodemus is an expert. Jesus is alluding to a passage of the Bible that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. It comes from the prophet Ezekiel and the 36th chapter. When God promises he's going to wash his people with water. He's going to purify them from their cancerous, life-threatening sin condition. And he's going to replace their old, cold heart of stone with his very own heart. And so I think Jesus is saying lovingly to Nicodemus, Come on, Nicodemus, you know what I'm speaking of. You know there's something more, don't you? You know it in your head, and you know it in your heart. That's why you're here tonight. I know, I know teachers can teach things for year upon year and never really grasp truly what they mean. But think it through, Nicodemus, because you're a really smart man. And Nicodemus, you really are a respected Old Testament scholar. You're, you're one of the best. You know the scriptures and you know that God has always intended and wanted and desired an intimate relationship with you. And he wants to give you a brand new heart. Nicodemus, you know 
that religion is a dead thing. It's a dead-end street that you have been running up and down all your life. And you've been running hard, haven't you, Nicodemus, to earn God's favor. But you're sensing it doesn't work that way. I have a feeling that you know there's a personal, born from above, transformational relationship with God that changes everything about a person's life. And I think you sense that in me. And you're here to know how to get it. You see, all that Nicodemus had known to this point was religion and rituals and showing up and and just trying to do the right things. Rules on top of rules, on top of traditions, on top of traditions. How to do good enough to get noticed by God and noticed by other people, not necessarily in that order because that's what religion will do to you. It will get you running. It will get you striving and motivated by guilt to seek applause and approval from other people. And he's saying, Nicodemus, you have no idea if you're good enough, do you? Or if you've run far enough and fast enough. And I think he's tired of running. He's tired of what Jesus would declare in Matthew 15, 9, of those who worship him in vain whose teachings are merely human rules. He's tired of pretending to know God when he truly doesn't in his heart. Now, honestly, have you been there? That's where some of us have been or are. And I'm guessing a lot of us have been there. We just get to the point where we're tired of faking it, you know? Tired of the rituals, tired of the structure of man-made rules, the games that just draw the life out of you and make you want to know God less sometimes. And so there's many people who walk away from religion and say, you know what, I will never set foot in a church again. But then you meet Jesus who says, come to me. It's a relationship with the Heavenly Father that I know you have been thirsty for and I will give you living water that will change you from the inside out. You must be born again. Eternal life is real and it's found in me. Rolling Stone magazine had an article a few years back with an actor that I always get mistaken for, uh, Brad Pitt. And uh, he said this, He said, man, I know all these things are supposed to be important to us. The cars, the condo, our version of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? If you ask me, he said, I say toss all this. We've got to find something else. I don't have those answers yet. The emphasis now is on success and personal gain. But he writes, I'm the guy who's got everything. I'm sitting in it, and I'm telling you, this is not it. I think Nicodemus is there. This guy who's feeling the emptiness of life, and he's sensing that Jesus has the answer for it. And that's why he's there this night. And Jesus knows it. And Jesus stays with this respected Old Testament professor approach by going back to another story that Nicodemus would be familiar with. And I love the way Jesus always makes these connection points with people, with things that they're familiar with. He's always done that, and you know what? He still does it today. He recognizes our uniqueness and our experiences and our situations, and he knows how to 
teach us so that we get it. And in this moment, Jesus is trying to help Nicodemus understand in a way that he can understand. And so he says this going on in Scripture. No one's ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. He goes back to the story that, that I know, I know, Nicodemus, you're familiar with this. You've probably taught this a dozen times to those that sit underneath your teaching. It's all the way back in Numbers 21, where God finally sends these serpents in the, the Israelite camp. They have complained enough, they have rebelled against God enough and waved it in his face that God, he's done with it. And so he sends these serpents in, and and people are getting bitten, and they're dropping like flies by the hundreds. And and Moses prays for the people for this to stop. And Nicodemus, you know that it said in in Numbers 21.8, the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it on a pole, and anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. You remember that story, right, Nicodemus? And even though Nicodemus couldn't wrap his sight around it yet, Jesus is saying, There's a day coming, Nicodemus, very soon when I will be lifted up on a pole, on a cross. And anyone and everyone who looks to me will not only be saved from the snake bite of sin, they're going to live forever. And just to make sure Nicodemus really understands this, I can see Jesus kind of reaching and putting his hand on Nicodemus' shoulder and pulling him close and, and locking eyes with Nicodemus as he says perhaps the most famous words in the Bible. Look at this. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. Just the amazing love, the amazing grace of Jesus. You know, we've probably all seen someone standing at a ball game in the end zone, you know, holding up that John 3.16 sign, right? And people wear it as jewelry uh, with it on it. Some people get tattooed with it somewhere on their body. Right, Janie? Right? Okay. Um, Tim Tebow, he used to write it in the black uh, uh, that he would put on his face before the game under his helmet. And if you've ever wondered, you know, what does that say or what's the context of it? Now you know the incredible good news for anyone who believes. And it's so great to me that Nicodemus is the only one who actually heard these words come out of Jesus' mouth before there ever was a John 3.16 written down. On a dark night, hanging back in the shadows, Jesus chose to give him these famous words of love and life. You know, in in the Bible, there are four different books that record the life of Jesus. The Gospels that mean good news. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You've really got to read them uh, this fall. They're, They're amazing. And it's interesting to me that it's only John's Gospel that mentions Nicodemus. And he does so three different times. John writes in the last chapter of of his gospel, he says, listen, about Jesus, I'm just scratching the surface. I I could have written so much more about the amazing things he did, the amazing teaching, the amazing authority that he had. I suppose if I were to write them down, 
Well, this whole world wouldn't have enough room for all the books that would be written about all that he said and did. And yet out of all the things, out of all the, the, the numerous things that John could have recorded in his gospel, he records this individual seeker's quest for a life in Christ, in God, for him and for you and me to look at it. Here's the last thing on your outline this morning. After being with Jesus, Nicodemus, he came out of the shadows as a devoted follower of Jesus. I want you to flip ahead with me in the scriptures, if you would, for a moment, to John, the seventh chapter. In John chapter seven, a year has passed since Nicodemus came in the secret late night conversation with Jesus. And and by this time, most of the Sanhedrin, they want Jesus dead. They'd had enough of his teaching. They'd had enough of his miracles. They couldn't stand his popularity with the people or his pointed comments directed at them. And so we read in John chapter 7, verse 45, that, that they sent these temple guards to arrest Jesus, but they all come back empty-handed. <laughs> and, and we read in John 7, verse 45, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? And I love the way these soldiers respond. No one ever spoke to us the way this man does. It just, they're flabbergasted. I mean, they're saying, if if you want to go after him, then you go and get him yourself. Because there's something different about this man that you're not getting and we're getting. And so they just, they rail against, they climb over these soldiers as dim-witted Judeans And they're just so upset. And they say, you mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? We're the ones who would know the real deal. No. But this mob who knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. But then through what I'm sure was a continued discussion and murmuring and grumbling, the Bible says, Nicodemus the one who had earlier gone to Jesus at night and was one of their own number, asked, does our own law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? You see, Nicodemus had been with Jesus. He'd heard those words in John chapter 3. He'd sensed something was different. He'd been one-on-one with goodness, eye-to-eye with the holiness of God and the understanding eyes of truth. He'd experienced hope in his presence. And so he stands up and he says to his fellow Pharisees, hang on a minute. Are you guys going to jump to conclusions and condemn someone without taking the time to get to know him or examine the evidence? You see, Nicodemus' doubt has turned to defense. Secretly going at night has now become public association by day. And so Nicodemus' colleagues, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find a prophet does not come out of Galilee. I love the story of of Lee Strobel. Uh, Lee Strobel, his story is one of moving from doubt to defense as well. He was a self-proclaimed atheist and he worked for the Chicago Tribune. He reported on uh, criminal cases and was a highly intellectual guy. He'd won several awards for his investigative journalism. And he was just an evidence-based, cold case kind of guy. 
Well, his marriage wasn't going well. And his wife started to figure there's got to be more to this life. And a friend had invited her to go to church. And she went. And she met Jesus there. And she started attending church regularly and growing in her faith. And Lee Strobel saw the changes in his wife. And he said, at that point, I made up my mind to look at the evidence for this Jesus. Because if my wife was being deluded by something, I wanted to be able to tear her down or to put her straight. But as an investigative journalist, he thought like Nicodemus. Well, I can't condemn him without first examining the evidence. And he started doing this, and this is what he wrote. He said, all I'd given the evidence was a cursory look. I'd read just enough philosophy and history to find support for my own skepticism. A fact here, a scientific theory there, a pithy quote, a clever argument. Sure, I could see some gaps and inconsistencies, but I had a strong motivation to ignore them. A self-serving and immoral lifestyle that I would be compelled to abandon if I would ever to change my views and become a follower of Jesus. As far as I was concerned, the case was closed. There was enough proof for me to rest easy with the conclusion that the divinity of Jesus was nothing more than the fanciful invention of superstitious people. Or so I thought. And Lee writes those words in his best-selling book, The Case for Christ. And then he goes on to list out all the evidences that he examined. And he became a strong believer defending the person of Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you, if you've never read that book, The Case for Christ, that you do so. You see, he moved from doubt to defender to devoted follower. And I believe that was Nicodemus' path as well. There's a third and last time that we see him in John's Gospel. It's John, the 19th chapter, and it's right after the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. In John 19, verse 38, it says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. Now, look at this. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds or 35 kilograms worth. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and in strips of linen, for this was in accordance with the Jewish burial custom. Two powerful, connected, influential men, once in hiding, Hiding from God at one time, hiding from others in each other, now together at the foot of the cross. The cross does that to all of us, doesn't it? Because the ground is always level at the foot of the cross. And think of what was at stake for this rule-keeping Nicodemus in the moment. Both of these men, because they're handling a dead body, would be considered unclean and unfit to celebrate the Passover. No Pharisee in his right mind would ever do that for any reason. That alone would get him kicked out of the Sanhedrin. Plus, this was Jesus, the one they had just crucified. Not only that, but Nicodemus, he had just made a huge financial investment as well. You might remember the story in Jesus' life of the woman who came with the alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. 
And we're told in John 12, 5 that it was worth a year's wages, that jar. Nicodemus comes carrying 75 pounds of perfume and expensive spices with him. It's an extravagant expression of gratitude and love and deep, deep respect. You see, Nicodemus, this wingtip wearer, had arranged a special meeting at night with Jesus and now had moved from doubt to defense to devoted follower. And and I just wonder, as he stood there looking up at the cross, at the lifeless body of Jesus, I wonder if he heard in his mind those words spoken personally to him in that late night encounter. The Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. As Nicodemus pried the nails from between Jesus' wrist bones and his ankles, I wonder if his mind was swirling with the words, Nicodemus, God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. And as he washed the blood that drenched Jesus' body away, I wonder if he heard those very first words that Jesus ever said to him, Nicodemus, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he's born of water and the Spirit. And as he wraps the body of Jesus in those strips of linen, I wonder if he thought of Jesus going deep below the surface to speak directly to his heart as he says, Nicodemus, the issue isn't where I came from. It's where you're going. And it seemed like Nicodemus settled that question once and forever in his life. The question is, have you settled it in yours? Where are you in all of this? Are you in the position of of a doubter? Are you a defender of Christ? or, Or are you that devoted follower? And what next step, friends, do you need to take this morning? Would you commit that to the Lord today? I'm going to ask you to stand with me. I don't want to pray for each of you as we wrap this series up now. We'll start a new series coming up next week. uh, And uh, we'll talk about our church family as we pray for each other. and As we have our time to get together next Sunday night. But right now in this time before the Lord. Anybody need to step closer to him? Anybody need to go beyond the surface talk and, and get deep with Jesus? Friends, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray right now for an encounter with you. Through your word, Father, and the example of a man, for his reasons he came to you at night. You always made time, day or night, for the honest seeker. And for us, we have that beautiful encounter, those beautiful words that you shared with him, the opportunity you gave to be washed with water, to be a recipient of your spirit to be born again. Father, help us to understand what it means to be born from above. To have a life that is transforming from the inside out as you do your work within us. That this is not about keeping a long list of rules and do's and don'ts. It's about living in an awareness of your presence because no one loves us like you do. No one holds the design of our days and our future and our eternity like you. 
So Father, help us to make the choices we need to make right now to get one step closer. In Jesus' name, amen.